0: This time on Refried Reviews, Oi Vey! I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> okay, so I uh, I'm hesitant to even bring this to the table because somehow. I always end up choosing flicks that are just complicated with a lot of ins and a lot of outs, or that aren't even necessarily that detailed, but it's just sort of a big mess, much like this movie. Um, the what have you is, I think, what really gets us <laughs> to this one. Exactly. So, uh, welcome to Roof Rider Reviews. Uh, this is JP, here with guest host Sean Farina. Yo. So, Sean is one of my closest friends. We've known each other since high school, and uh, my passion for actually... Just sort of dissecting media and tearing it down more than most people have any interest in doing. I feel like sort of came from our high school days and talking about uh, I don't know Kevin Smith and Richard Linklater and Kubrick and the Coens, of course.
1: Yeah, uh, same here. You were you know the first person I ever went to the New Beverly with, uh-huh. so and which oh. is not insignificant in the history of me caring about shit like that.
0: Yeah, so sentimental for the Los Angeles area. All right. <laughs> So, I'm really happy to bring you aboard to uh, to help discuss um, A Serious Man today, yeah. is what we're going to jump into.
1: I'm uh, happy and honored to be here, and uh, yeah, like, you know, I loved listening to you and John, and you guys were, uh, you know, a great... Uh, like really a great pair and definitely you know two of the quickest wits that I know and uh, in in very different and complimentary ways so uh, I will try to fill his uh, eloquent and or verbose shoes as well as I can.
0: (laughs) Well I appreciate that thanks so much for coming on.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, So uh, we were chatting earlier actually about so A Serious Man is a movie that is something that came to mind immediately when the idea of this podcast sort of Uh, bubbled up originally of just something that sticks in the back of my mind all the time, and I'm not quite sure how to articulate, but it always makes for good discussion and showing it to new people who haven't seen it. And, funnily enough, I'll have to verify with John, but I think this was actually going to be the original first episode of Refried Reviews, but we both watched it independently and sat down to talk about it, and I think we're sort of immediately overwhelmed by... The complexity of this movie And how many ways to approach it And the fact that it was the first episode And we were sort of figuring out Even what the pacing and what the tone was going to be It it all felt like a bit much Yeah, not
1: not the most accessible one for a wide audience
0: (laughs) uh, Considering our eventual episode one Ended up being Star Trek 2009 (laughs) uh, I think that's a fair point to make
1: Quite a different direction
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so It's exciting to finally get back to this movie I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan um, Miller's Crossing, if I remember correctly is the only Coen Brothers one we've, we've covered so far, and I, I love, essentially, their whole filmography, so I'm excited to talk about it in any capacity so I guess we could just uh, jump uh, jump into sort of our backstories with it how are you introduced to the Coens, how do you feel about the Coens, how did you first see this flick I think Fargo
1: was probably the first Coens flick that I ever saw um and then i remember actually in did you have ms mckimmy and then she got married and then what was her name after that in (laughs) high school vaguely familiar yeah she was the head of the english department for a while uh uh-huh larson nelson i think she gave nelson sounds familiar nelson
0: I don't have these kind of memories at top of mind usually. Anyway, uh,
1: she uh, she showed "Raising Arizona" or a scene from "Raising Arizona" as an example of just like straight farce in (laughs) class one day. I believe it was the scene when he's running through the grocery store and being chased by the guy with the shotgun, and then the dogs are coming at him (laughs) and and all that. Um, And then it was you and uh, my dear high school girlfriend Nikki who had seen The Big Lebowski and showed it to me (laughs)
0: Um,
1: and uh, yeah that was in a like pretty much every Coen's movie I feel like you have to watch them a couple times to really absorb everything that's going on there Mm -hmm. and um, you know the Big Lebowski, I really appreciated and loved it the first time I saw, or liked it the first time I saw it, I should <laughs> say. I'm, I don't want to give myself too much credit. It is a, a gradient, usually. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that the second time I watched it, it all just, like, fell into place and, you know, blew my mind and, you know, it was, became the, the classic for me that it is for, you know, so many people now. Do you
0: know, was it 98 when
1: it came out? I believe that was 98. It was the follow-up to Fargo which is why it was, you know, by I guess partly why it was so poorly received at the time. Because yeah. people just know what the
0: hell to make of it. Yeah, I mean, talking about accessible versus inaccessible. Yeah. Like, Fargo is, is a little bit left of center. But Lebowski is, you know, layered in ways that Fargo is not. Yeah. Uh, but that that also, I feel like Lebowski and a, a lot of the Cohen catalog, but Lebowski in particular, benefited from sort of the the uprising of DVD where I know that people collected VHS tapes, but it was sort of long after they had come out in the first run and cost $100 to rental stores to buy. Right. And Laserdisc was a thing, but that was also sort of exclusive and expensive. Laserdisc is still a thing, my friend. Yeah. Fair enough. (laughs) I've been to Amoeba. Um, But I I think that it it hit at just the right time where I believe Lebowski was uh, the first DVD I bought along with, like, South Park Volume 1 and maybe Fargo. And uh, that was in, you know, 98 or, uh, 98 or 99. And just sort of the beginning of being able to even watch these things over and over again uh, in a normal way that wasn't spending money renting them again and again. Like, right. you could actually just sort of buy it, you know, in crystal clear 480i quality. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the I, I feel like the, the Coens were incredibly important in particular for sort of our generation where something like Kubrick was fascinating but it was mostly historical the current works are more controversial and were coming out less and less frequently and then he died fairly you know uh, young into our uh, cinema education he did whereas the Coens like people had written them off by midway through getting used to all this and then No Country for Old Men were sort of oh they're still here and wow! <laughs> and now they have Oscars. Yes, that's true. Uh, no matter how upsetting people find it that they rarely thank anyone and just sort of awkwardly go up there, or say anything to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, it sounds like we were both. Uh, uh, we we have a similar sort of Cohen origin story in terms of how we started watching and appreciating them.
1: Yeah. What was the first one you saw in the theater?
0: Oh, oh, in theater. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean Fargo and Lebowski I sort of loved a little bit in retrospect and that was when I was really getting into them what would be the first one after Lebowski I know I saw Oh Brother Worth thou in theater that, that was 2000
1: when was a man who wasn't there
0: ooh that's a good question that I did see be... that one as like a, a screening at the Egyptian I felt very trendy
1: <laughs> uh yeah, whichever one of those came first, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we don't
0: need to get lost in the weeds. Right. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah so you sound I, like you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, I, I think we both find them sort of formative and still obviously very talented to this day Yeah. and everything. So that's, I guess, how we're both coming at it. Um, I'm pretty sure I first saw this movie with you, but it was not your first time seeing it. So do you remember when you saw it?
1: That's was roughly my recollection also i think the first time i saw it was with um, my then girlfriend now wife amanda um i think we were on vacation when we saw it Mm -hmm. uh it was one of our like little weekend beach trips or something like that and you know it was just (laughs) a light-hearted
0: rom-com yeah (laughs)
1: Yeah, sweetie, you don't look like you've been questioning everything about your existence enough. Like, let's uh, let's fix that.
0: Hopefully there were no Cy Ablemans on your trip.
1: <laughs> Not that I was aware of. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and then the second time you and I saw it together. Yeah, which I,
0: I seem to recall even then you were sort of like, this is worth seeing and it's weird enough that like, you'll want it on the big screen to take it all in. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I mean, I guess we both saw it in theaters at the time. Um, did it? Uh, did it sort of hook into you pretty quickly, or did you think about it years later? Or
1: it, uh, I could tell. Like by that time, I had already gotten a sense of kind of how I watched Coen Brothers movies, at least, and it seems like you do too. And I would think a, a significant number of other people too, mm-hmm. um, which is you have to watch them a few times to like <laughs> really kind of you know you you get the content and or you get the content or the state of mind the first time and then you can really kind of settle into you know the other the second time you watch it and then kind of go from there and then they just become endlessly rewatchable for me anyway Mm -hmm. um and uh you know i've i mitered in philosophy in college it's the kind of stuff i like to think about uh but uh so that whole aspect of it definitely appealed to me, but just how dense it is with the ideas that it's, it, it's exploring certainly took a few watches to really you know, become one with the film in the way that it asks you to
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's I, I feel like I wrote down two pretty dense pages of notes and my summary of the movie would either be brief or sort of a, uh, it's complicated <laughs> 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 I mean, there there sort of isn't necessarily a single thrust. And funnily enough, in one of the opening scenes when he's sitting in his office, they hand him, like, a, a pile of phone calls that he has to return. Yeah. And that's, like, largely an outline of the plot. Mm-hmm. Of <laughs> he's going to be dealing with the Columbia Record Club. <laughs> he's going to be dealing with this student that he can't get rid of. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's one of those things that, you know, you
1: really key into and when you watch it again and really appreciate the the brilliance of the way that they lay that out but you know the first time around it just you know a few scenes later it's like there's just so much going on already <laughs> that it kind of you know slips away
0: yeah so i mean this it, it became apparent to me pretty quickly that this was at least a movie that stuck with me and that i felt a weird urge to re-watch or recommend uh, every so often So, I maybe have seen it five or six times since theaters, which is it 2009 when it came out? Yeah, 2008,
1: 2009, something like that.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, maybe, like, every other year or something like that, seen it maybe, like, five, six times. Yeah, yeah, so, I guess, uh, I I suspect we won't go through uh, a very A to B to C uh, explanation of the plot. Yeah, but I can just at least start going through my notes of what I have here as we progress through it. Because it's it's kind of a sticky wicket of a, a story overall. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can just say up front that it's Job. Like yeah, that's something certainly. that I, I always I, I remember going in and I kind of forget halfway through, and I'm like, a, a lot of bad shits happening to this guy. Yeah, <laughs>
1: well, it, it does a great job of you know in a non biblical way or just not in the way that stories in the Bible are written uh, of, you know, just feeling very personal and really drawing you into this guy where, you know, by virtue of the language of the Bible and just how how didactic it is, you know, you're here to learn a lesson
0: when you (laughs) sit down to
1: read Job and, you know, this is, you know, it doesn't feel like that and, you know, sometimes you learn a lesson when you watch it and sometimes you don't, depending on who you are.
0: Well, it's funny how you bring that up. I, I imagine a lot of the religious imagery and references from this were probably pulled from the, the Cohen's childhood of growing up in that era and growing up Jewish in an American neighborhood. Right. And uh, I, I want your reaction to the, the Dybbuk story, which leads off this whole movie. But I have to say, this might be the first time watching the movie where I felt watching the Dybbuk story... It reminded me a lot of sort of studying religious texts, which is a major theme of the the frustration of that throughout this movie. And the idea that this story seems to have hints of greater life lessons, but if you try and explain it end to end, you don't know that it ultimately has much to say. Right. (laughs) So that was the first time that I sort of looked upon that where this opening story is almost thematic in how it's disjointed and doesn't have a clear lesson but is sort of constructed in that very Bible Old Testament kind of way where it's a series of things happened and it's a parable and it's on you to take from it something but you don't necessarily understand all the backdrop of it and the context
1: yeah and but to that point it uh, this is the first time I uh, really noticed or and well, more likely bothered to remember just (laughs) how much about that, you know, living in that era, the story bothers to be, you know, you see her, you know, chopping ice with the ice pick as you would in that day. And you see the,
0: uh, (laughs) did you see the aspect ratio they were in? It (laughs) was
1: shit. Um, I don't know. We've kind of gone in the opposite direction now, with everybody shooting things vertically on their fucking phones, which <laughs> drives me out of my goddamn mind. But that's uh, that's for another time. Um, uh, but you know, the uh, the fireplace is built and you know all slanted. And he talks about having to sell geese, and he's fixing the, the the wheel on his cart, and it's just so so many details in such a short amount of time about having to live in that in that era. Um, Which uh, it made me think of watching The Witch recently. Did you see The Witch? I did not. Uh, That's a movie that does a great job of, you know, making its story be about what it's like to live in a certain time and place and, you know, kind of what that brings to the way people approached faith where uh, you spend a lot of time talking about God because it's just really fucking hard to stay alive. (laughs) And uh, yeah, you want to believe that there is a reason to uh, to go on in that time.
0: And that certainly brings a lot of relevance to the idea of a look at the parking lot, Larry, (laughs) like sort of the magnificence of just being able to exist when a lot of these religions and traditions are times when, yeah, people didn't have a lot of existential crisis because it was so much work to stay alive and you didn't necessarily have access to information that would help you arrive at the terrifying realities of things yeah
1: there was no fresh perspective
0: <laughs>
1: you were just chopping wood and killing things to eat them and then praying and
0: going to sleep <laughs> trying to judge whether the stranger at the door was a monster or whatever. <laughs> yeah. so the uh the opening sort of establishing shot of this movie was inside an ear canal so there was something more in common with, you know, Fight Club or whatever that I, I hadn't quite remembered.
1: Yeah, but you don't know you're in an ear canal, but it has this, you know, vaguely organic feel to it as mm-hmm. this, you know, this this circle is kind of approaching you or you're approaching it. Like, you know, it could be, you know, it, it winds up being an ear canal, but it looks like it could be
0: a birth canal or something It definitely has a birth like canal-y feel. Yeah. <laughs> so that's... Uh, Opening of sort of one of, the, one of the major arcs of this movie, it feels like if you had to sort of narrow it down to two, the clearest seems to be Larry Gopnik, which is uh, the Job character yeah. that we're following around, as just sort of negative thing after negative thing happens to him as his life falls apart. And his 13-year-old son preparing for his bar mitzvah who is going through much more sort of teen hijinks type of problems. Yeah. Where he's maybe getting uh, beaten up by the bully for stealing some money and getting stoned at times when he shouldn't. (laughs) And uh, sort of having difficulties, but not sort of universe-closing-it-around-him kinds of problems. Yeah.
1: Spending a lot of time not caring about what his dad is caring about or what his dad is going through, (laughs) or much of anything besides getting high and watching F Troop.
0: Yeah, which is sort of underscored by the introduction of the movie is cross-cutting between him sort of suffering through a boring class and his dad suffering through a boring doctor's appointment that may ultimately lead to his demise if the uh, you know the broad hints of the movie are to be taken literally.
1: Yeah, I had forgotten before this viewing, too. Uh, the, you know, it starts off trying to draw very superficial parallels between their stories with, you know, we, uh, you know, the ear as we just discussed uh and then cutting to larry at the doctor's office getting his ear examined and then cutting back to a you know a girl in danny's class as she's kind of drifting off to sleep and you see her eyes closing and then cutting to larry getting his eyes examined and then it's a kind of asks you to invest in that kind of you know those direct parallels that they're telling in a visual way, and then abandons them immediately just to throw you off. Killed her.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> sorry to take a quick step back to the uh, to the Dybbuk story. Um, that was one thing that uh, going into the the theater. Cold or colder than you did because you, you and I saw it together, and I had seen it before. <laughs> but when Amanda and I went in there, uh, just one more thing the Coens did to just like fuck with you and make you question everything about everything that's happening to you at that moment, uh, <laughs> going in there and seeing this weird four by three film in Yiddish and wondering like what the what what the fuck is this? Am I in the right theater?
0: We definitely saw it like at a Lemley where we could have easily wandered into the wrong theater. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I that I liked about the, the period aspect of it was there's the doctor smoking pretty immediately. Yes. And then uh, offering Larry a cigarette. Which is something that I feel like especially in a madman era is easy to go overboard on. Mm-hmm and if anything this kind of played against type with how um larry is not sort of a patriarch he is almost in a passive uh a passenger on his entire journey with with sort of no agency in the story yeah so it's funny that it is sort of the opposite of someone like a don draper but it employs some of the familiar imagery of the doctor off offering you a cigarette and uh, the the hunting neighbor with his hunting son <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah would you would you like to look cool in the way that it's thought of in this era <laughs> no okay you just go ahead and sit there <laughs> yeah that, that struck me too as you know just yet another because every scene is just packed with these um, kind of reminder that we don't know shit uh, you know back then doctors were smoking <laughs> like because we didn't know that it was killing us
0: yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even the sort of how the, the character of Arthur, Larry's brother, is dealt with throughout of their their code words for almost everything he's doing. <laughs> and it's weirdly under the surface and detectives show up at the door, but nothing is ever explicitly spelled out. Right. Him.
1: Yeah. You don't see the like the causal ramifications of anything that he does.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. The I mean, as you say, we we just they give you so little to work with. In kind of a refreshing way yeah. where in a lot of ways it feels to me like it would be more familiar if you grew up in a Jewish household during that era but I'm not necessarily sure that that's true like this feels like sort of a, a very unique specific story that a lot of people can identify with and that very few people could identify with in sort of the, the array of things that it's dealing with but all sort of beneath the surface. Yeah, it's there. There's something about it. Like they really sort of nail the the era and uh, the the underlying feeling of it.
1: Yeah, and like in you know in, in the way that you're talking about in terms of being able to identify with the story, uh, I feel like it. and We have talked about this before. I feel like it has less to do with being Jewish or not, and more about what you're kind of outlook is. Um the Judaism of it, uh it's kind it's like simultaneously the most and least Jewish movie like <laughs> there is. Um because it's it's not about Judaism. They're you know, the cohen's obviously know and have lived uh the kind of the structure that comes with growing up Jewish and uh you know, being bar mitzvah and all that and you, Uh, other, I don't know about other aspects of, you know, Jewish life that are presented there, but uh, they're, you know, just using that as a platform to talk about these, you know, bigger philosophical ideas about kind of where we're just dropped in the universe and, you know, deciding what kind of questions we want to ask about what we have to work with and, you know, how faith either works for or against us in, you know, when things are going
0: well or poorly. Well one of the one of the earliest conversations in the movie is sort of the the introduction of the uh very white, sort of Aryan white traditional American neighbor, and that he's sort of he's mowing over part of my lawn and that the wife just sort of gives him a dismissive look and says, Does it matter? <laughs> and I feel like that oddly is the biggest theme of this movie it's sort of deciding where to direct your time because no one is going to tell you what actually mattered in the present Yeah, you're going to sort of have to make your choices yourself and there is no easy coddled answer because either this is unsatisfying because there are no real answers or just existential crisis seems to be personified in this movie yeah That feels like the the biggest thing to me is not even the the idea of whether to be a good person or not, but sort of the existential angst that comes with that existence of sort of needing to have faith in this or that and that our brains are so well-developed for detecting patterns, but we're never going to know if we're ultimately correct. (laughs) We're sort of like the moment that you know for sure, you're gone and you don't get to know. And while you're constantly assaulted
1: by a just barrage of different perspectives about how much anything matters, you know? Mm -hmm. Like when the... um, the, the guy who works on the tenure committee comes and says, uh, You know, this person is, you know, making assertions about you and your, you know, moral fortitude and all that, and, uh, you know, telling everybody on the tenure committee, but like, oh, but that doesn't matter mm-hmm. because it's not going to affect our decision about whether or not you get tenure. It's like there, there are so many questions that come out of that about how you should feel about that. <laughs>
0: I I forget even specifically what they were, but there were verbal gymnastics about the the idea of doing nothing and how, uh, whether it's the Columbia Record Club or whether it's, (laughs) do you have any extra letters to submit to us for your consideration of the idea of, oh, so you've decided to do nothing, which in effect is doing this other unintended thing (laughs) and sort of being faced with that nonstop of, even if you try and avoid the decision, that in and of itself has an effect and a consequence. And if you decide to stop considering what you're doing, that doesn't mean that the consequences stop in any yeah. way.
1: In the same conversation, when uh, when Judith first tells him that you know she wants a divorce and she's been seeing Cy Abelman, and you know <laughs> him doing nothing is why she's leaving him, but her doing nothing in the you know being with Cy Abelman's sense is you know, very validating to her position in yeah the that's, that's exchange, a good point I know. hadn't thought
0: about that, that's really funny <laughs> Cy Abelman? oh yeah, this whole movie <laughs> 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 so Clive the Cheating Student which is another fun insane example of
1: which to his credit understands the dead cat
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> But just how many places can they imply the confusion of the dead cat, which maybe um, let's see if I can find it in here. But perhaps my my favorite line in the uh, the entire movie that I feel like uh, emphasizes the meaning of it is when he's talking to Clive, and uh, what is it uh, like? Not even Mr. I understand. Mr. miser. The miser? Dead cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. I know I wrote it down. Yeah, yeah. there it is, fucking... (laughs) Even I don't understand the dead cat. The idea that understanding that the mathematics are what matters because they sort of have to be true according to the tenets of what you follow, it's very easy to feel like you understand superficial explanations when there's hand-waving behind them. (laughs) So sort of if you have to choose one or the other, the rigorous mathematics is maybe not comforting but you have a lot more evidence for its conclusions being true where you get no warm fuzzy feeling from it at all or even a feeling of understanding and I feel like that is one of the central tenets of this Um, if you're looking for the answer of why things happen that is not going to quench your thirst of making the universe make sense
1: Yeah, it comes back to, yeah exactly the whole idea of uh, you know, in faith and like the weirdness of looking to faith for answers, because faith is faith <laughs> and looking to faith to deliver some level of truth for you, uh, it's just inherently paradoxical if that's like what is going to give you meaning in life, you know?
0: Yeah, and I mean sort of the A lot of the, the absurdity of that pursuit, I think, is is represented by the the ascension of rabbis sort of trying to climb this hierarchy of who has the sacred knowledge of what's really important in the universe and um, the the idea that his young son sort of has nothing but time and freedom to ponder all these things and to talk about it and has very little interest in any of it (laughs) like wants to listen to music wants to fuck around wants to get stoned and the rabbis kind of in the middle, they seem, they, they don't have ultimately satisfying answers, but are happy to sort of spin their wheels. While the oldest rabbi is almost like, has acknowledged that there aren't ultimately answers and is ty- uh, tired of trying to amuse people. <laughs> yeah,
1: the, uh, the, the set decoration in their offices
0: just <laughs> is
1: amazing. Uh, I had never noticed before that uh, in the, the the young rabbi's office that it's full of Rolodexes. They're like giant Rolodexes all over his desk, <laughs> and you know, amidst the clutter, that also includes, uh, like as you pointed out, as we were watching, you know, the Ten Commandments <laughs> as kind of you know a, a businesslike afterthought. And all that, and then you know, of, of course, he holds the parking lot in very high esteem.
0: Um,
1: and then you know, the the second rabbi, he presents himself in a, you know very uh, he's just very presentable. He has a very nice, neat office. He's got uh, a nice lamp at one end of his desk, and he's got a very probably expensive globe on the other end. Um, and then you get to Marshak, who has this giant like museum of an office uh who and I always forget this and I fucking love it when he's walking up to him and when uh, when Danny is walking up to him at the end and uh glances over and sees the uh the 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 tooth chart uh the like oh. the, the chart of the of the uh, of the mouth there that has all the teeth in it after uh, <laughs> Rabbi Nochner had told the story about the goy's teeth, Doctor Sussner, Doctor Sussner, like <laughs> as though you know there is actually some kind of you know brilliance to be gleaned from that story, and Marshak holds it and then he gets there and he just quotes Jefferson airplane,
0: <laughs> be a good boy, <laughs> yeah, and there's, I feel like that's really part of the the ultimate theme of i mean i guess i said existential crisis already but the idea that when you're desperate for this kind of information you're sort of burdened with the realities of life and sort of the the decades of survival and the the level of cynicism that often comes with that Whereas sort of the young person is given time specifically to study the richest texts that you can find, try and find meaning with it. And it's like, oh, I don't want to memorize this thing. <laughs> i have enough
1: fucking homework already. Exactly.
0: So that it's so much of it is sort of cruel circumstance of the universe <laughs> from this movie. And I think that that is sort of one of the cruelest things. It's an interesting point with the religion specifically, but I, I've heard it since I was a kid. Of sort of education is wasted with the young. Like yeah. you'll never be more interested in all the animals and history and all that kind of stuff than when you don't have time to study it on your own.
1: He knows how it enriches enrich his life. It's F. Group and Santana Praxis
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and weed. Yeah, all the weed you can get your hands on. <laughs> oh man! So Dr. Sussner and the goy's teeth. <laughs> I when I mentioned that the this was maybe the first time that the dibek story played to me as intentionally enigmatic and like seeming like it's trying to say something without necessarily having answers. The goy's teeth is like uh, it, it almost feels like vindication of like that is clearly what they're trying to do with part of this movie. Yeah, is <laughs> like how much can I obscure this in? Um, in what seems like profound storytelling, which is more like that—that's just hand waving. Like I don't even know what that means.
1: <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, all anybody has to say about anything is like, try to be a good person.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, so well executed. <laughs> and I mean, I I think. I, I said to you earlier. It feels simplistic, but when I watch that ending sequence where it sort of ends, uh, I'm sure disappointingly for many people in the middle of various crises, the biggest thing that sticks out to me when the son sort of has a last moment of whether to to give back the money he stole from the, the bully kid is as he's looking upon this storm that may or may not lay waste to the entire temple... It's either the most important or least important decision of his life. <laughs> like, if you believe in religious morality, then you have to settle all these cosmic debts and sort of that's what matters most. If you have a little bit more of an empirical atheist point of view, it's sort of what does any of this matter? This storm is going to wipe out all the kids and the fact that he stole 20 bucks from me is rendered completely irrelevant by the fact that they're all knocked to dust. So I I think that 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 might be the the most uh, brilliantly sort of uh, displayed point in this whole movie is that it's so hard to judge between the two alternatives. And they can seem sort of uh, to come from similar places, but somehow prescribe alternate points of view. And there's no thorough explanation for how you should live your life.
1: So what if he gives him the 20 bucks uh-huh. and then immediately just turns his tail and just runs the fuck away <laughs> with no concern for Fagel's life, like after he's repaid his debt?
0: I mean, I think it depends what, what kind of <laughs> lore we're dealing with. I mean, if it's Old Testament kind of stuff, uh, that seems a lot more loophole <laughs> Like, I follow the rules. It's said in the book. <laughs> Whereas New it, Testament feels a little bit more like, well, was that how you should treat your neighbors?
1: <laughs> Old Testament, yeah, you sacrifice some goats and stone some broad who was <laughs> menstruating on a horse and, you know, gotta wipe the slate clean.
0: <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like I'm supporting a testament <laughs> of either kind. I'm just throwing it out there.
1: Yeah, it's funny, because, you know, the uh, the two storylines, the father and the son, um, you know, uh, the father who is, you know, desperately trying to find answers for himself in a way that doesn't, he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of concern for how he's, you know, presenting himself to his son. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, aside from help having him, you know, go through getting bar mitzvah and all that and kind of, I guess like going through the math of faith in in, in that sense, uh, you know, or the, the, the general obligation as it's spelled out, uh, you know, very explicitly. Um, and then at the end, they both kind of made decisions that if you're going to, you know, believe the editing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and who can ever really believe that after? Or anything after watching this movie.
0: <laughs> well, Roderick James is a hell of an editor. Roddy, baby. <laughs> um,
1: and that all kind of comes on the heels of you know this like weird third act that comes out of nowhere. Although I don't know you know what the story was building toward anyway. Where <laughs> you know it's he wakes up after after he has this terrible dream in the Jolly Roger about you know them getting killed by his possibly anti-semitic neighbor and (laughs) i guess there's no reason to believe he is or is not he certainly seems like he might be anti-asian is there a classier (laughs) term from that
0: yeah i mean that that seems to be the (laughs) clearest indication we got of sort of he's only as racist as far as our borders go yeah um
1: but uh, yeah, he, you know, he wakes up from the terrible dream and he says it's Shabbos and, you know, of course everybody uh, who he's talked to has been talking about Danny's bar mitzvah coming up and we see Danny practicing for it and all that and, you know, kind of here we are and it's this, you know, great community gathering and everybody's very happy there and for no real reason Judith is suddenly seems very willing to be, you know, much more accepting of Larry And, you know, says nice things to him for the first time in the entire film. (laughs) Um, And, you know, wants him to believe in himself. And, uh, you know, it kind of, it's so, like, nice and heartwarming that that you kind of forget that it comes out of nowhere. It's also very entertaining to see the kind of, you know, stoned vision of Danny as he's going, (laughs) you know, through the process and all that. Uh, and then you know you, you kind of get back to Danny sitting in class and Larry sitting in his office and as they both make their poor decisions and are possibly arguably um, not necessarily uh, reaping the ben- the the punishment of those <laughs> uh, you kind of realize like oh that wasn't that didn't really mean anything.
0: <laughs> well I also wondered whether that was intentional in the sense that, Yes, it feels like it's edited in the sense that they're both making poor decisions and then maybe bad things will result from it. But there's also the idea that he was making, I, I don't want to say good decisions, but he seemed to be trying to do his best throughout most of the movie, and bad shit kept happening. Yeah. So it, that was something I almost wondered about where... If the end of the movie is more about our aligning up our decisions with what's going on in the outside world and finding patterns where they don't really exist, because it's easy to look at the end of the movie and be like, oh, they made this decision and this bad thing is going to happen as a consequence. But throughout a lot of the movie, he's trying to make the best decision and good things don't happen, bad things keep happening to him. So maybe the pattern is that bad shit keeps happening to this guy, regardless of what he does, and that's just sort of... The universe at work. Yeah. So that, I I did wonder whether that had almost the, the opposite intent of what it looks like on its face. Of it spelling out, like, these things are happening as a course of action. Of they're making these choices and something good or bad is happening as a result. Where the rest of the movie is almost framing it as the universe is just happening and your life is sort of tacked on.
1: Right. Yeah, it's certainly what I feel like we're supposed to take away from it. It, it. That last bit, though, it does on this viewing for me, it kind of felt like a, a commentary on the uh, kind of false comfort that comes from, you know, participating in organized religion in that way. And specifically in those rituals, because, you know, like I was saying that the the third act of it comes out of nowhere and everybody's very positive, you know, response to like the bar mitzvah and all that comes out of nowhere, at least as far as like the narrative is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a, it was a very interesting use, uh, I would say, of a you know like film narrative structure to,
0: uh, you know, play into that idea. Um, well, something that had occurred to me um, was the idea that with all the weird quirks. Of sort of this close-knit jewish community that that almost played to me like one of the benefits of being part of it of that like he's sort of he's part of this weirdly broken home where it seems like people don't necessarily even want to deal with him anymore but when sort of this event tied in with their religion happens they sort of all still show up in droves and they're at the temple to celebrate this thing happening right I mean, so that, that to me played a little bit as sort of part of the community aspect coming together and almost for better or for worse, like the way that for a lot of the film it's overwhelming, at like sort of dealing with this structure and with people like Cy Abelman, of yeah. sort of, uh, overly familiar and overbearing in a lot of ways, that that the the bar mitzvah I saw almost as... as one of the positive aspects of being part of a larger community like that, that you could sort of probably have an event and people kind of put it aside because that's what you do when the kid turns 13.
1: Right. Um, Because every character that you encounter, uh, you know, for one scene or for, you know, two or three, it's all, you know best to Judith. You know, Danny's about to be barbitzfoot, isn't he? You know, the doctor, the lawyer, the, uh, the woman with the crutches at the beach who is <laughs> telling him about how great it is to be Jewish because they have this wealth of tradition to... Uh, they can look to 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 find wisdom
0: um (laughs) not being uh cast in this movie must be like you know when the godfather trilogy is over the sopranos you know season six ends and you're the italian character actor (laughs) Uh, i need every talented jew we can find (laughs) but so um is that sort of largely what you're talking about like the the large um like, the, the, out, the outpouring of support for the bar mitzvah, when you say the, the third actness, like, is that a similar thing that you're reacting to? Or do you mean the rest of the circumstances, like, sort of how the, the wife is treating him normally again? Uh,
1: well, yeah, I think they're kind of uh, part and parcel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just kind of making a statement about how, you know, when, like you were saying... It's, you know, it's, it's been a film about this guy who's trying so hard to do the right thing and bad shit just keeps happening to him. And, you know, at the end of the film, after the bar mitzvah, bad shit keeps happening to him, that there's, you know, the, there's kind of an emptiness to, uh, the, the togetherness of the, like the act and sacrament or, or, I don't know, whatever the Jewish word for sacrament is, (laughs) that's specifically Catholic, isn't it? Um... (laughs) Uh, I guess what kind of high school we went to Uh, (laughs) just kind of, you know, in a cosmic sense, uh, at least as far as, you know, the kind of themes that the film is interested in exploring that, you know, it's kind of empty that everybody, you know, makes the decision to come together in that way, even though, you know, they've been talking about how much this sense of community matters and all that. Uh, A writer that I know said something that has always stuck with me, Uh, Daniel Thompson, who wrote on Once Upon a Time. He said that, you know, you you hear people say that uh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And that always seemed very weird to him because it was the, you know, the magic that was always hard for him to swallow. But, you know, he definitely identified with the comfort of, you know, the community of being part of a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, a big part of what the last, you know, from the you know, bar mitzvah sequence or, you know, even from that scene where uh, Larry wakes up and realizes that it's the day of Danny's bar mitzvah until the end of the film is it's kind of about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the. I don't necessarily know where this movie is coming from, from a spiritual point of view, because, I mean, I... I've sort of identified as atheist for a long time, so it's easy to sort of pluck your own beliefs projected onto any piece of art that's ambiguous about it.
1: Right. So
0: it's easy for me to look at how a lot of these scenes play out as sort of the silliness of organized religion. But uh, I am interested how much of it is... What they took from an, an actual religious childhood upbringing, and sort of whether they think of it more as a mishmash of legitimacy and sort of the fluff parts and the important parts, whereas I can sort of you know look on it and from my point of view, it's just like oh all this silliness. Whereas it, it doesn't seem like the movie necessarily is looking entirely down on the community aspect of it. Yeah. Like it's it's more playing on the the sort of almost fun knowing aspects. Of like I bet you know this guy from synagogue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would uh, using the word silliness, and I know you're not trying to be dismissive about it. I think like futility is kind of what uh, like how it feels to me. Like they're trying to, to to frame those ideas. You know, at least as far as you know, somebody who's caught in the in the chaos of the universe, the way you know Larry is, is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, as someone who also identifies as a heathen, uh, (laughs) I, uh, you know, I I don't have any beef with people who find fulfillment in that, you know, kind of life uh, who, you know, go to church and get something out of it as long as their beliefs aren't driving them to, you know, any kind of bigotry uh, or, you know, any other kind of, you know,
0: negative social impact. Did Um, you feel like the movie had a particular point of view sort of in terms of that? Um, so that's where like, I feel like it's easy to watch it and identify with the parts that are making fun of it, but it's, I, I have a hard time where I wonder where sort of their cynicism with it ends because mine is sort of like dismiss the whole thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. You see a lot of people in the film who are very happy with what they get out of their faith. Uh, you know, certainly the, the rabbis, um, maybe Marshak, I don't know. He just <laughs> kind of sits there and looks like another part of the museum that his office is. Um, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the woman that Larry's talking to on the beach with the crutches, and, uh, you know, even in the you know tumultuous time that we find Judith in, she seems very, you know, resolute and comfortable in her decision-making because of you know how validated she feels by her faith so uh and certainly mr abelman (laughs) Uh, he is a serious man he's he's a serious man (laughs) um straight from the rabbi's mouth
0: yeah i guess that might be one of the most infuriating things about the whole movie is it, it feels like he's desperately searching for answers the whole time and no one seems to share his curiosity in a way
1: yeah. he's kind of like, is no
0: one else as upset with all this as I am? Seems to be sort of largely the gist with uh, with Larry Gopnik.
1: <laughs> the man who regularly walks into his house and the first thing he says is, what's going on here?
0: <laughs> Approached never on all a, sides. Never
1: has any idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Their version of internet porn is watching the hot lady next door sunbabe. <laughs>
1: you know not bad
0: <laughs> no not at all and <laughs> coming by uh where he'll need his iced tea or smoking <laughs> marijuana
1: i love that just as like a little diversion in the story because <laughs> it goes absolutely nowhere <laughs> just like her as a little like three beat rudder in the story where he you know he he sees her uh you know early on when he's up on the roof and then he he goes and you know declares that he's decided to help others Um, and uh, then you see her in the uh, in the bar mitzvah at the end that's that's that's
0: it with like the no real intent but just sort of the funny hint that like yeah the father and son have probably both fantasized about the neighbor lady (laughs) (laughs) no 100% that
1: that little look on his face when his eyes land on her like that
0: yeah (laughs) looking uh a little more like a goy than the rest of the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With the what was what was her line? I was like, "Holy moly, those are!" Silent. Holy cow! Yeah. Holy cow! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew it was something fun. <laughs> I mean, the really just hats off to the casting department. Of I don't know if I've seen like a more talented group of character actors who I you know, at least don't recall seeing in things before. I'm sure I've seen them all everywhere, but yeah.
1: Hmm. But just, like,
0: so few recognizable people and all of them awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Several of which
1: you hear speak almost exclusively Yiddish.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh, man.
1: So just, like, a random little moment of just having the the audience and the character kind of question accessibility to information. Um, When Larry is up on the roof Mm -hmm. and he's adjusting the antenna. And, like, as he's turning it, you're hearing the the audio from, like, whatever station, presumably from whatever stations that he's tuning into. Uh And, you know, the last time as it kind of settles, it's, you hear F Troop coming in, which (laughs) is the the, the coveted F Troop. Like, that's one that's, it's tough to figure out kind of what to take away from that. It's not like he's hearing that, Mm -hmm. but he lands in the right place so is that just is that his experience knowledge of being able to turn the is that like the one thing that he has that he knows how to do in this godforsaken universe
0: I remember an article that came out within the first couple of years after this movie about sort of a a, a physics grad student or professor or something um, writing down their interpretation of it and it you know sort of got more and more heavily into the idea of Schrodinger's cat and how it's clearly expressed through all these different facets of the movie, and I I sort of wish I had found it and read it before this, because I remember it being interesting, but it is funny how it feels like the the bridge between their fascination with how reality works and sort of how language works that's where it feels like a lot of the humor comes from um, sort of as we talked about the idea of like, well, if you didn't do this, that's the same as if you did this, and uh and just sort of a lot of the if you investigate it that means that it happened sort of so much of Schrodinger's cat permeates the ideas behind this and sort of the the futility of trying to find patterns in this but the more you look at it the more unpredictable it becomes and just oh those Coens every
1: moment of it is you know when uh the blind curve of like of the cars coming around as uh, as Si Ableman is making his left turn and, uh,
0: at the the same moment for all I know. <laughs> yeah.
1: And another one where uh, you know it's it it starts off and in in that same moment for all we know, <laughs> um, it kind of does you know inverse of what it does in a lot of other scenes where. It starts very chaotic, and you know you kind of. Well, I mean, you know, it's it starts in a, in a way where it kind of feels like you're like drawing a parallel between. It feels like they're, that's going to be the same scene and not just the same moment that totally. they're actually coming toward each other, and then it becomes very clear after a few minutes that they've you know kind of that. They're in different places, and different things are happening.
0: Yeah, which which I feel like has a lot to do with. the the themes of this movie and what's accidental and what's intentional and sort of if you draw a wide enough boundary around coincidence like yes it would have been the most coincidental thing if they had gotten into the same car crash and he killed him but it's sort of one degree separate isn't that fucked up? (laughs) We may have both been driving at the same time and sort of the uh, once again how what we're best at is matching patterns and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's meaningful, just that we're good at spotting it and that it's weird.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can see it's subtle, it's convincing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, Sableman. Oh, man. So important. <laughs>
1: that fucking guy, he's got it all figured out, man.
0: He really does.
1: Even before he uh, before he moved on, and all the the answers were just handed to him in a golden book, <laughs> and he had it all. As far as he was concerned, he had it all figured out.
0: I mean, he had figured out uh, what Larry should do. I mean, after all, the Jolly Roger is eminently habitable. It's eminently habitable. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: man, you want Sibleman on your side? I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> I mean. He- it almost felt like that sort of flowery language almost sort of encircled Larry of like if you use enough euphemisms for things of like constantly talking about the get, which no one can get on the first uh, the, the first try. yes exactly <laughs> where it's adding in layers of abstraction, like sort of taking him further away from reality, where he's almost lost track of what's going on. Of he's lost track of everything that's familiar in his life. Yeah. And sort of even the the question of does your brother live at this house becomes too long a story to even go into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sleeps on the couch.
1: Dad sleeps on a cot.
0: Also, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think we covered uh, it pretty well, even if in a, uh, a rather zigzaggy kind of way. Did you have any more thoughts about this, Flick?
1: Um. I mean, not not really thoughts, just like a lot of observations. You know, just like all the different ways that you know we all wind up where Larry does at the end of that dream. We can <laughs> we can never really know anything. You know, Clive, of course. You know, no matter how carefully you watch that scene when he you know he, he first walks into Larry's office, like you can never see whether he places the envelope <laughs> there or not.
0: I wrote down that uh, for anyone who's ever seen Horace and Pete, this. In a, in a weirdly tangential way, really the, the dialogue kind of reminds me of it, where in some ways it seems random, like it really captures the way that real conversations sound, where not every statement necessarily follows directly from the one before it, mm. in sort of a Sorkin, he's clearly talking to himself kind of way. Like, I feel like there, there's good writing where you can tell that the people aren't necessarily even talking about the same thing. Right. But it still sounds like a real conversation. This movie, I think, is really great at that. And sort of the dissection of nobody chooses words fully by accident. Kind of the, like, what was meant by that? What does that mean, the grander scheme of things? Like, those are a lot of things that stuck out to me in this and as well as sort of Horace and Pete is like almost its entirety. Like the, the whole reason it exists is because Louis can write like that. And, uh, and it makes for a, a compelling story, even if nothing sort of identifiable or super interesting from the outside is going on. It's just writing sort of fascinating interactions between people and this imagined backstory of how that dynamic came to be.
1: Never any confusion about whether it is or is not whoopsie-doopsie.
0: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, the number of silly words in this movie. I mean, <laughs> and the names. Like, I didn't write down enough of the names, but the, there's no such thing as a Coen Brothers movie with bad names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, we, we talked about the goy's teeth. I think my favorite part of that is, a, at the end, it's the uh, what happened to the goy. Who cares? Who cares? Sort of like how insular that is of where for people who aren't necessarily after the ultimate question of, well, what does this all mean? It's sort of when the, the question of what does this mean to me personally, when you reach outside the bounds of that, I think that says a lot about a person of whether they've actively thought about it or not. Of how does this, what does this mean for the structure of the universe for people who aren't me? <laughs> i think is sort of a fascinating question
1: it's not one of the questions in
0: the book i didn't know the answer to that (laughs) (laughs) so uh sean had the idea that that i thought was a a really good curiosity to pair a serious man with another sort of cohen existential crisis movie and maybe one that didn't immediately jump to mind for me as a something affecting the way that this one did but that has definitely stuck with me over time is uh, Inside Llewyn Davis, which is uh, their more recent movie. Was it 2014 when it came
1: out? I think that was 2013. Okay. And then this year we got uh, Hail Caesar.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It has been a couple of years. Um, so uh, you brought that up as a possible pairing for A Serious Man as both sort of loosely about... The futility of existence and questions like that. So, uh, I think that's probably what we'll be diving into next time.
1: Yeah, one that uh, asks a lot of those questions with uh, much more significant focus. <laughs> <laughs> Our friend uh, Bill Hansen, mm-hmm. um, I had a conversation with him about Inside Lewin Davis, which he did not like, uh, which. Did and did not surprise me, because he's someone who was actually making uh, making something about a, you know, musician, a struggling musician. And uh, he didn't like Lewin Davis, uh, and he said that it was, he felt like it was about nothing. As we continued to talk about it, we got into whether or not he should watch A Serious Man, and kind of my, my thought about how to compare them in a glib way, I guess, is that, uh, you, you know... I don't think Inside Lou and Davis is about nothing, but like I I understand how kind of narratively aimless it is. But a serious man is about how it's about nothing, <laughs> very so, intentionally
0: about nothing. Yeah, when exactly. The minutiae of life takes over to yeah. be the
1: movie. It's less, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's it's less of you know kind of like dropping you on a narrative path and then just letting it inch forward, you know, so slowly. There's a lot happening that just isn't yeah. about anything <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright so I think uh, next time we're going to leap into Inside and Davis thanks again Sean for visiting and, thank you uh, for having me we'll uh, continue diving into the Coens next time thanks for listening